Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Today I thought it'd be interesting to discuss an interesting new book that I've been reading. It's called Deep Work. It's by Cal Newport. The subtitle is Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. I found out about this book on the Productivityist podcast, which, interestingly enough, I'm the editor and producer for. So I often get an advanced listen to the uh, topics and guests there. And I believe it was the January 1st episode of this uh, this year, 2016, Cal Newport was a guest on the Productivityist podcast with Mike Vardy. So if you're interested in learning more about Cal Newport, I highly recommend the book, I'm about halfway through it, as well as the podcast uh, over at Productivityist.com. I have no idea if this book has anything to do with our normal topics, but I found it kind of interesting. And being that you're my philosophy guru, <laughs> I oh, I read a couple of sections in here that I thought were interesting and a little inaccessible to me. And I thought, well, let's see if we bounce them around, see if you can illuminate them a little bit. And I'm also, I don't know, I have this hunch that that some of the themes in this book and some of the concerns that Newport, the author, is raising maybe relate to some of our other conversations about Christianity and lack of depth in, I don't know, beliefs, thoughts, the way things are, that we approach things. Um, so just just a quick background on the book. So the the contention of the book is that the competitive advantage of tomorrow is the ability to concentrate. The idea that there are so many distractions today with the internet, social media, our workplaces, our work lives. Uh, he describes in one chapter how uh, the typical knowledge worker of today, which I relate to a lot, spends a significant amount of their day just triaging and responding to email. And his point that that is really not deep work. One of his contentions is that, at least in the chapter that I'm reading now, which is uh, titled Deep Work is Meaningful, is he's he's kind of building the case that we live more satisfied lives when we do deep work. So in this chapter, he's kind of building a case for that and so he gives a a psychological argument for death and then he switches to giving a philosophical argument for depth and this is where you come in <laughs> so he's talking okay. about these two guys from or i guess one's from berkeley one's from harvard uh hubert dreyfus and sean dorrance kelly who wrote a book called all things shining and which, quote, explores how notions of sacredness and meaning have evolved through the history of human culture. And he starts talking about, you know, how we've lost the notion of sacredness and, you know, and then starts to look into, you know, where did that come from? And these two authors are referred to Descartes. And this is what really caught my attention. And this is quoting Newport. From Descartes' skepticism came the radical belief that the individual seeking certainty trumped a god or king 
bestowing truth. And then he goes on to talk about the Enlightenment. And whenever Descartes comes up or the Enlightenment, my brain tends to kind of fog over and just like, oh, (laughs) how does this really help me today? But it seems to be kind of speaking to some things here. So first I wanted to dig into that a little bit, which is for normal lay people like me, can you spell out a little bit like what was significant about Descartes? What's significant about this his skepticism and then there's a kind of a follow-on section about the enlightenment and how that didn't really help us either well yeah i mean um i'm looking back to a post i I wrote some time ago on my blog about descartes so i'm happy to read some of that that might actually be so yeah bring it in okay so we've got this idea in philosophy we've got um, some broad categories in western philosophy this i'm always talking about western philosophy eastern philosophy i don't know a thing about and i don't claim to ever be talking about it so it's always western philosophy so it's european and then ultimately you know north american as well once north america how be at that place and have philosophers and philosophy you know philosophical schools and whatever inclinations of its own um so i wrote a post on descartes i'll just read this out um the point i guess about the philosophical schools is that um descartes is seen as one of the premier figures i was going to say instigators but i don't think that's quite true um premier figures in a philosophical movement that might be best under best known as modernism or modern philosophy modern thought and right now we might term the period of at least philosophical thought that's uh, occurring in our world you know in 2016 as postmodern and it's been postmodern for a while and before modernism there were there were sort of other maybe there were ancient mindsets and and other sort of these are very very broad categories but anyways so that said um i'm just going to read you from this from this i we'll, we'll see how this works I, th- I think this should be okay the poster boy for modernist thinking is rene descartes a french mathematician and philosopher descartes is famous for the conf- conclusion i think therefore i am but the problem that precedes this conclusion and the method he uses to used to solve it are what interest at least in me interested me most in this post through his studies and travels descartes found that people held all manner of contradictory beliefs nor did the number or education of the people who believed something guaranteed the truth of it in contrast descartes observed that in mathematics the proper use of reason guarantees certainty about our conclusions and so he decided that reason properly applied could grant certainty in other areas of life. So this is, he's a mathematician and he's working from this notion that mathematics always works. You get certainty with mathematics. Yet when he goes through his daily life and he sees people who are well-educated or not, or he sees a number of people who hold a belief that seems to be very sketchy, and yet there's a lot of them that think this way. So how can we correct this? Um, So he had already deduced that all human beings, this is his assumption, have the capacity to reason and that each person is equally able to apply this capacity. So with the right method and enough practice, human beings could not only know things truly, but could even master the natural world. 
living happier and even longer lives. So this was kind of his big thing, you know, mastery over the natural world. So does he, is is the conclusion from this too, that that we can approach everything with certainty? Uh, yeah, he would say so. You know, but of course he's a, he's a, he believes in God. He, he, you know, he created a, I think his was the ontological proof for God's existence, but he uh, certainly believes in the uh, the existence of the soul. He uh, he's the guy that came up with this idea of the pineal gland or whatever it's it's called. I think that's the right word, which links the body with the soul, and it's this kind of hinge. But he would say that you know God God's existence guarantees a number of things for us, and that we need God, and God's very important. So he wasn't trying to sort of over overrule God. I don't think. I don't think this was the original intention and i've even heard it put and it seems reasonable to me that a lot of the impetus for descartes work was this desire to be able to adjudicate between competing claims so if you think about the fact that you know he's seeing various numbers of people from various walks of life with different levels of education believing all manner of things well how do you get to the truth of a matter well he would say you take your reason and you properly apply it so um What's his method? Well, he started with reason, which is not simply thinking, but is specifically the ability to determine truth from falsehood. So that's his notion of reason. Next, Descartes held that properly applying one's reason meant only accepting things as true that were accessible to the mind in a clear and distinct fashion, things that could not be doubted. So this is pretty important, this clear and distinct idea. Um, But in order for something to be undoubtedly true, it must be true despite one's best efforts to doubt it. So Descartes said, I've got to start, we've all got to start all over again, right? Because I hold all manner of beliefs and I've acquired them because my mom said this was true or, you know, I heard some people talking about this or, um, you know, I saw something but only saw part of it and I drew some conclusions. So he wants to strip everything away. He has this method of, of universal doubt, if you like, that he applies to everything until he got down to the, the barest, lowest notion, which that is that he could not doubt that he existed because there was someone there to doubt. So if someone's, if, if, if there's doubt happening, it has to be being done by something. So his, 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 his response to that is I think, or really maybe I doubted (laughs) and therefore I am, I am, I exist. Right. So he, that's like the clearest explanation of that I think I've ever heard. Oh really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) No, that's good. I like that. Okay. Well that's, that's good to know. Um, so, um, that's exactly what he did. He went through a process of doubting everything that he believed, you know, that everything he had, he had acquired in his life or believed in his life up to that point. So having already observed how people typically establish their views on inherited practices and customs, this is his idea, rather than reason, his method rejects all past opinions as false until proven by reason to be true. And so sense perception also. So I might see smoke, but to say there's a fire over there, well, did you see the fire? Did you just see the smoke? Did you smell the smoke? It may not be a fire. Maybe it's something else. So again, the only thing that he couldn't doubt was his own thinking, and this gave him absolute certainty of his own existence. And this was the basis for his entire philosophy. So how does that tie into the quote from this book? From Descartes' skepticism came the radical belief that the individual seeking certainty trumped a god or king bestowing truth. I don't feel like I completely understand the last part of that. Sure. 
Um, bear with me a second. I'm going to come back to your, your quote. I've just got it right in front of me. Oh, there at the bottom of the page, yeah. From Descartes' skepticism came the radical belief that the individual seeking certainty trumped a god or king bestowing truth. Well, I mean, I think it was the empowering of the individual, right? To be able to think and to be able to come up with um, true understandings. But yeah, I mean, some of this is this this distinction between, you know, is, is trust something that is earned or is trust something that is given? If trust has to be earned, then you're going to have to prove to me that you're right, first of all. And I'm going to use my better judgment to determine whether it's so or not. If trust has to be given, well, then I'm just going to go along, right? I'm just going to take what I'm, what I'm, this is truth. And I'm going to take it and say, oh, this is truth. And I'll go with that. So I think what, what's coming out of um, Descartes, yeah, they're calling it his skepticism or his, yeah, maybe this project of universal doubt um and there's more to it than that as well like descartes would say that we can see things from this sort of neutral perspective we can become a neutral observer and we can be so you know before he talked about or i mentioned about this whole thing about customs and and um whatever the other word was um, that we understand things based on our past perceptions that may or may not be true well, if we have, um, if we can reject that or if we can push that aside, then we're going to try to work towards um, knowing these things for ourselves and knowing them in a more, I guess, objective fashion. We can be, as Descartes would say, I don't know that he would, yeah, I guess he would say that. And, and it would be pretty uh, prominent in, in his thinking that there's a sort of neutral position that we hold. And so we're not affected by, we can be not affected by our our past uh, prejudices and habits and customs and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that's part of the, the glory and the terror of the Enlightenment is it put human beings in a much more central spot. But I don't think that that's necessarily, like if you're asking me from a Christian perspective, if there's something wrong with that, I, I, I think that what had tended to happen and what we saw before Descartes you know, with Luther and people like that is, uh, and the, the Protestant Reformation is, hold on. You, you, you know, the, the church, there was only the Catholic Church at that time, so it's the church, says, if you purchase this indulgence, then you will help get your relatives out of purgatory faster. And this was a way for the church to make money on the basis of doctrines that were entirely sketchy but, of course, the church made tons of money because the people can't read. How do they know the doctrines? Or even if they can read, how, how are they in a position, not being educated, to be able to assess these things and then not having these skills? So the critical analysis that, that is taking place within this Cartesian model, I think, is absolutely essential to, if you like, a Christian way of being. But on the other hand, yeah, it can certainly be a basis for... You know, it changed the starting place, if you like. And I think that's, maybe that's too bold a statement. Uh, a, a specialist in modernist philosophy or in Cartesian thinking might 
might cut back against me, but I would say by and large, the modern philosophy and the uh, Enlightenment movement changed the starting place. But I don't think that it did that inappropriately because um, I'm not sure how human beings can start any place other than with themselves. So I think this, the rest of this, the following part to the quote that we've read a couple times, it ties into enlightenment. I'm kind of curious, like, what you do with this part. So continuing to quote Newport, the resulting enlightenment, of course, led to the concept of human rights and freed many from oppression. But as Dreyfus and Kelly emphasize, for all its good in the political arena, in the domain of the metaphysical, this thinking stripped the world of the order and sacredness essential to creating meaning. I'm already kind of getting lost there. <laughs> I'll keep reading. In a post-enlightenment world, we have tasked ourselves to identify what's meaningful and what's not, an exercise that can seem arbitrary and induce creeping nihilism. So I'm curious about that. Like we've talked a lot about like, how do you, you know, discern things correctly? So I, I think that ties into some of our past conversations. Yeah. And then he's quoting, uh, through Dreyfus and Kelly, and it says, quote, the Enlightenment's metaphor, the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment's metaphysical embrace of the autonomous individual leads not just to a boring life, it leads almost inevitably to a nearly unlivable one. That sounded really profound, but I didn't really feel like I was kind of <laughs> getting what they were laying down there. So, there's like, I don't know, maybe three big things there to unpack. And this last one, it almost seemed like there was a certain level of irony that the Enlightenment was supposed to make everything wonderful. Mm-hmm. And in essence, they're saying maybe it resulted in creating this completely unlivable idea. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's so much that's, that's really, really interesting in there. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I think I would agree that in, in, in certain ways, you know, when, when he writes that um, it's removed the sacredness from the world, you know, and it's removed some of the mystery and it's, you know, how did this happen or why does this work? Well, because God makes it work, you know, and that can be um, very soothing. It can be very, um, I don't know if I'd call it liberating, but it it can certainly it removes from me the necessity of understanding things. And for me personally, that's absolutely crazy making in certain areas of my life because I need to understand things if I'm going to have a sense of ownership or, um, you know, do, do action and response, proper action and response relative to those things. If I don't understand them, then I'm just stabbing in the dark, you know, and few things are more frustrating than that. But of course I'm in 2016 and Descartes was writing back in the 1630s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, so a long, long time ago, you know, and even further back before that, when we had these uncontested notions that everything that happens is is somehow divine. And so there's this kind of degree of mystery, there's this degree of moreness with the world. And I don't think this is something that anyone who lives in a in any form of modern society or culture can can relate to. I, I just don't think we've lost that. And I, I think that there are certain things about that that are sad, but I think that also, you know, I would kind of cut back against what they're saying and that in a 
that next sentence, in a post-enlightenment world, we have tasked ourselves with what's, uh, to identify what's meaningful and what's not, an exercise that can seem arbitrary and induce a creeping nihilism. Well, I, I think that that's the way it is. In other words, that, that is part of what it is to be a human being. And I think to have given that up is to approach matters in a way that we never were supposed to, at least from a, from a Christian perspective and a biblical perspective. What's a creepy nihilism? What, is, what does that mean? Well, that, that we have this, this terrible sense, and it may be kind of low-lying and, and, and not really prominent all the time, that, that, that nothing matters in the end, that nothing's worth anything, that there really is no meaning at all, that life's not worth living. And so, you know, we have this, you know, what's it all for? And I, I think that this is, this, is, this is part of this all-or-nothing thinking. Like either God makes the stars move and made you get up in the morning and made me say this, or God's nowhere to be found and there's nothing uh, divine anywhere. And I think both of these ideas are ludicrous. I mean, they're two ends of the spectrum, sure. But, 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 but really, like, would you want to live in either one of those worlds? I mean, maybe God does make everything move and maybe I am a puppet. But I'm certainly not, you know. I, 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 but we don't get to choose. We're just living in the world that we have. Well, we, we are. But I, I, I think <laughs> I have a sense of making my own choices, you know. And I have mm. a sense of things not going the way that they should sometimes, and a sense of things also sometimes turning out the way that I think and hope they will. And so, I think that in the world of of living and acting and suffering, that there is. Um, I don't know. I think there are threads of connectivity that would link together between me desiring something, me acting towards that, that thing, and that thing being realized in part or whole or however much it's realized. You know, and in the other end of the spectrum to say that God does not exist at all. I think that he's saying more than that. I think he's saying that it's not just that God doesn't exist, but that because God exists, that, that, that because, let's say, someone concludes that God does not exist, that there is no meaning whatsoever. And I think I would agree with some, a number, many atheists who would say that's, you know, they don't agree with believing God and they don't think life is meaningless. And I would say, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, right? I don't need to have uh, this notion of God for my life to be meaningful. I, I, I just don't, don't believe that. So I, do, I would disagree with Christians who would say that, you know, the reason one of the reasons for atheists to become Christians is so that their lives will have meaning. I think they've got meaning already, mm. you know, but so, and I, I think the, the other piece too, that that last sentence, the enlightenment's metaphysical embrace of the autonomous individual. Is yeah, what does this all mean? <laughs> okay. Well, this metaphysical, so this idea that, that they can't, um, Descartes starts off with something that he can't prove. So he does go through this interesting process and get to the conclusion, I think, or rather, I doubt. I'm doubting. So there must be a doubter. That's me. Therefore, I exist. And I would say, yeah, I think that's a sound conclusion. But the idea that you on your own should be doing the thinking. So this idea of the autonomous individual, the, the just, it's just me against the world and I'm supposed to, that's how it should be. Uh, I don't know about that. I think that um, communal... Uh, efforts towards understanding the world, communal engagement with the world, these are highly important. And, and, and part of what it is for me to be me is to have a certain community. If I all of a sudden lost my family, 
I lose a very great deal of my identity. Right? I'm not just sad. My identity has changed. And part of my sadness is due to the identification of the loss of that identity. So these are things that don't really impact Descartes because he wants to rule out everything that's not certain. So sense perception, you know, what I see, what I smell, what I taste, what I feel, right? And then the whole idea that, that reason trumps it all. Like if we're dealing with mathematics, if he's using mathematics as a rule, it's pretty clear that things like uh, the imagination, uh, uh, memory and experience, these don't matter as much. And I would say, uh, I'm not sure how you get there, right? I'm not sure that mathematics is the ultimate... Um, template that we should be using to um, formulate how human beings exist in the world and how they should be interacting with the world such that they can understand it better. Mathematics is one way of seeing things. It's not the only way. You know, stories are incredibly powerful. They're not very mathematical. And so, you know, I'm not saying anything that many, 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 many philosophers have not said, and in, certainly in, in more concrete and, and compelling ways than I'm saying them, but there are a lot of flaws with what Descartes has done. And so when they write the meth their metaphysical embrace of the autonomal, autonomous individual leads not just to a boring life. So yeah, you, you, you are on your own and it becomes a very devoid of some of these things. They've said this kind of idea of sacredness, but there's also just creativity, imagination, experience, taste. Can, a, can, can something to do with a fantastic meal alter the way you see the world? Can it offer some true insight into the world that can't be mathematically quantified? I think so. I've certainly had some wines like that. And yet, I don't think that can register on Descartes' scale. So in that sense, yes, it's boring, right? So it's not just that it's not sacred. It's that it's, it loses a whole bunch of what it is to be human. And, and they go on and say it leads to an almost inevitably to a nearly unlivable life. And I think, well, yeah, because it's, it's, it's stripping us down to this sort of uh, pure intellect. But I don't think it's even pure intellect. I think it's a mere intellect. And then it's this whole idea that I can be a neutral observer when in reality, I'm very much... Um, attached to the things and committed to certain things that I believe and committed against other things, you know, and those commitments aren't just uh, things that I need to get rid of and, and cleanse myself of. They, they're actually um, valuable in terms of that whole knowing process. So I'm very committed to the idea that children shouldn't be abused. It's not just an intellectual proposition for me. It's an ethical one that I would actually stand up and enforce I have a commitment to certain things. So I don't know how much does that help? No, that, 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 that fleshes it out. Yeah. So, and then I'm curious to go on a little bit more on the next page on page, by the way, we've been on, if you've got deep work by Cal Newport, we've been on pages 86 and 87. I want to skip to 88 because there's a section here that I wonder if there's like, I don't know, kind of a postmodern tie in right. where, I've kind of understood postmodernism on a high level to be that that we all bring our own meaning and whatever meaning we bring is the meaning that's there, mm -hmm. not that something itself has inherent meaning. Mm. So I'm kind of surprised that it seems that they've kind of flipped it around. So they're talking in this paragraph about the notion of craftsmanship. And this is a big theme in Newport's other book, 
so good. So good they can't... Oh, what's it called? So good they can't ignore you. He he kind of builds this idea around the idea of craftsmanship and the idea of... A lot of this is in the context of professional work. And so his idea there is the idea of becoming a craftsman at whatever it is that you do. And that's what increases your you know value in the workplace and and the larger work life i guess so he's talking about this idea of craftsmanship here as dreyfus and uh, quoting him again as dreyfus and kelly explain such sacredness is common to craftsmanship the task of a craftsman they conclude is quote is quote is not to generate meaning but rather to cultivate in himself the skill of discerning the meanings that are already there this frees the craftsmen of the nihilism of autonomous individualism, providing an ordered world of meaning. At the same time, this meaning seems safer than the sources cited in previous eras. The wheelwright, the authors imply, cannot easily use the inherent quality of a piece of pine to justify a despic how do you say that? Despotic? Yeah. <laughs> Despotic monarchy. So they were talking earlier about a wheelwright and how a uh, the the inherent, I guess, craftsmanship in how wheelwrights of the past would make wheels uh, for wagons and, and and that kind of thing. So, what do you think of this idea that that of finding the meaning that's there versus bringing your own meaning? Well, I mean, this this is an interesting uh, the first because uh, I think what they've said here is a little different than what you just asked. So, okay, this idea of the craftsman. Not generating meaning, but rather, yeah, discerning the meanings that are already there. It's kind of like the idea that the sculptor uh, doesn't create something from the rock. The sculptor he just removes all the pieces so you can see what's already there. Exactly. Yes, and I think I think that's 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 an interesting approach. I think there's there's probably both, you know. So in other words, there's this notion of vision. Right, there's a vision that the craftsperson has. There's a vision that the sculptor has that maybe you and I don't have. That they see something in something, or they see something as something, which is also, if you like, interpretation. Right? Interpretation is seeing something as something. It's what you make of something. Just like what you make of a big block of stone is this the sculpture of the Pieta or the what, whatever it may be. Right? Michelangelo's David. Um. And so I think that concept of vision is extremely important. And I think that's extremely uh, important for how Christians interact with, with God. And I think this is, I've never heard this mentioned. I don't, I don't, very rarely heard this mentioned. That, you know, in other words, how we see God, the, 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 the per- way we view God to be, what God's character is, etc., determines in large part how we act and how we respond. It gives us a sense of order, orientation, Right. So I would think, I mean, this, this sounds, uh, it, it makes sense to me. Um, and I think, um, I had another thought about this idea, generating meaning. Well, yeah, it's like the Greek, the, there's an ancient Greek notion that there's the difference between these two concepts. One is techne, from which we have the word technique. So technique would be doing something according to a s- specific set of steps right? Making a cake from a recipe, um, building, assembling, assembling a car, 
from a number of pre-made pieces or, or snap together pieces or assembling a model. And the other notion is phronesis, which is practical wisdom. And practical wisdom can only be learned by apprenticeship to a master. And so this idea of phronesis is, again, interpreting within context in a just and appropriate way. So uh, a phronetic, if you like, not frenetic, but phronetic approach to a task would be to um, see it in its context and apply the most fitting sort of response. So if I'm building something, that I would build something that's in keeping or character with the surrounding area, or that I would uh, design something that is that complements the existing uh, uh, architecture or uh, structures, versus uh, something technical from techne would be I'm going to build something according to you know what's what's strongest and best and best use of the materials and is going to be you know whatever the main goal they've said is I want it to be robust okay it's super strong it's going to hold up over time but it looks terrible it does not fit in at all and so there's this. That kind of made me think here, this notion of the craftsman made me think about this kind of relationship between the, the notions of techne and the notions of um, phronesis. In terms of the whole postmodern question, I really, I mean, this is, this is a, a, a piece or a, an idea that for Christians is... Um, Yeah, it's absolutely anathema for most of them. You know, the ideas that people have about what postmodernism is are usually generated by the most vocal uh, proponents uh, of a particular type of Christianity. So if you watch the, the, the Truth Project put out by Focus on the Family, you will see a perspective on postmodernism. If you read the book's if you read Rabbi Zacharias's book, you will read a particular perspective on postmodernism. And then, if you chose to keep reading and to look a little further afield, you might be very shocked to read books by people who are extremely credentialed, far more credentialed than uh, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, or um, the fellow who, uh, his name's escaping me right now, who introduces and, and talks you through the, the Truth Project video. Um, and they have notions of postmodernism that are vastly different, vastly, vastly different. So I think, I think some of the basic notions that the postmodernism brings, I mean, it's, it's not so much a, a, a philosophy as a, a mindset or an orientation. And it uh, essentially uh, has taken in and lived with modern thinking and this whole idea of neutrality and doubt and uh, preeminence of reason and these other notions long enough and it's ingested them and said, you know what, I've got a stomach ache because this stuff isn't good for me. There's, there are some real problems here and there are things really that just aren't true. So in other words, it's not just that it doesn't work, it's that it's, 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 it's untruth. It's, it's dishonest. You know, and it was never intended to be that way. Descartes was not trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. But there's a huge dishonesty to it in that it promises truth and doesn't deliver. It's not just, oh, you know, you need to tweak this. It's, uh-uh. This project doesn't work. 
So I like, you know, if we're going to talk about postmodernism, one of the things that, one of the books that I find to be quite helpful, I still have some, um, some issues with it, but uh, Jamie Smith's uh, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism is a really, really good work and it's super helpful. And he looks at postmodernism from the perspective of three um, French thinkers. You know, his, <laughs> he's got this little cute uh, line in here. I think it's actually the first uh, title of the first paragraph, uh, par- pardon me, chapter, which is, is the devil from Paris? And he talks about, you know, so he goes on to talk about these three uh, thinkers, Jacques Derrida, uh, François, Jean-François Léotard, and um, uh, Michel Foucault, and looks at the three perspectives that they bring uh, in terms of um, postmodernism. So you have, you know, something like like um, Derrida saying, "There's nothing outside of the text, and that everything is interpretation." And of course, for Christians, this is, you know, red flags go up. Well, if everything's in pure interpretation, there's there's no truth. And of course, that's not what he's getting at. Uh, what he's getting at is interpretation is a part of everything you do. You are always interacting. You don't have this sort of pure relationship with information or with anything. With your experiences, you're always interpreting your experiences. The Bible, you're always interpreting the Bible. Even if you're relying on somebody else, that, that's an interpretation. It doesn't mean that it can't have value. It just means you have to back away from what Descartes was saying which is that you've got what, what could be called the thing in itself. You've, you've got the pure, unadulterated goods. You've got the truth, and you can have certainty about that. And um, ultimately, what someone like uh, um, Derrida would say, or even better, someone like Paul Ricoeur would say, is that, no, no, there, there will be conflicting interpretations. And some of those will be better and some of those will be worse. But you may find yourself with two or three interpretations that conflict in various ways and they all seem to be mm, relatively the same. And does that mean that there's no truth? Well, no, it just means the matter is complex. And you might need to find other methods of adjudicating if you're going to determine which of those two or three you will ultimately choose. You know, That's really subtle. How so? What do you well, mean? Well, it's really subtle in the sense that that yes, that I think it's pretty common that, that people would say, well, I mean, there's three different interpretations of this situation, so, you know, it can't be true, or or these three views conflict with each other. But what you're saying is, no, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. It's It could mean that it's just really complicated. Yeah. The truth is still there, but whether we can really get to it or not, not sure. Yeah, and, and everything, I think the other thing that Smith writes, I'll just read a little quote of his, um, from page 52 of that book, there is nothing outside the text means nothing other than, quote, or full colon, there is nothing outside of context. Nothing comes without a context. And how we, we weigh up that context and, and how various contexts related to something interrelate with each other. You know, and I may end up choosing my my particular interpretation of a matter, let's say if there are two or three and I can't choose simply on the basis of comparing them, comparing them based on how it works out in other parts of my life. And so there's this kind of very large interweaving or interlocking of things. 
you know, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's out of line. I don't think that's uh, proceeding in a way that's um, uh, irresponsible. I think that oftentimes we can come to decisions. You know, I can come to a decision about what a certain biblical text means. Most of the time, through the context of that text and commentaries and other expertise and sort of cultural information about, well, what did the original, what would the original listeners have had in mind and what was their context that such that this would have struck them in a certain way. But yeah, I, I don't think it means, I, I guess it, there is a flexibility, you know, in terms of this notion of truth, we always want to be fairly singular about it. There can't be more than one truth on a particular matter. And I would think that maybe the size sometimes of a, of a, of a matter may be larger than it appears to me. You know, could two seemingly opposed perspectives be right on something? Well, you know, we've talked before about this idea of tension, right? So there are tensions and they're necessary. I live with the necessary tension uh, between humility and uh, confidence. I live with the necessary tension between a degree of skepticism and belief, between suspicion and trust. And, you know, all of these are important. And I think once we begin to move away from, particularly as Christians, there's this notion that we have to hold, truth has to be like a, like a proposition. You know, God is love. Um, God is all-powerful. You know, like a short, terse sentence that says it all. And if there is any opposition, like the opposition, say, between confidence and humility, or between being fallen and from a Christian theological perspective, there's being fallen and being aided by the Holy Spirit. Well, these, these are in complete opposition, but we hold them both. So I don't know if, how much that helps, but those are my... Th- I think it's a good place to leave things. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.